Hey, it's Francis. You know, just the other week, I saw photos pop up in my social feeds of the Toronto Hot Docs Podcast Festival. And right away, I had this huge smile on my face remembering the time we got to record an episode from there. We went up there with Melissa Clark and talked with Maddie Matheson, Suresh Das, and Joshna Maharaj about what makes Canadian food so good. Check it out. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media, the show for curious cooks and eaters. Last fall, we had the great luck of being invited to record at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto. It is this phenomenal event. Over six nights, we were surrounded by friends and heroes, frankly, on stage with a live audience at the Ted Rogers Cinema. And we thought this would be a great chance to take a real look at how Toronto and Canada eat. Our first guest was Maddie Matheson. And this dude is just living his best life. Here's a guy who went from being a restaurant cook to a chef to them being someone who has a music festival named after him, one where the Wu-Tang came and performed. And a big part of the reason for that transformation is just that people love him. They love him on Instagram. They love buying kitchen aprons modeled on his naked, tattooed belly. They love watching his shows. Maddie Matheson is also the author of the New York Times best-selling cookbook, Maddie Matheson, A Cookbook. And as he made his way on stage, the crowd showed him some love. What's up? What's up, Toronto? Beautiful people. Thanks, Francis. Look how good he is at this. He's going to spit a few bars. Yeah. <laughs> so, Maddie, I am so excited to have you here. Yeah, man. For Stoked. a lot of reasons. Um, not least of which is because you have traveled Canada more than any person I know. Like, playing punk rock bands and, and driving across, going from, like, show to show. Mm. So I want to kind of go around Canada a bit with you today. Let's go. So what, what are some of the regions or provinces of Canada where you have really felt like you really can feel the culinary identity the most? <sighs> like, the thing about Canada... You know, the coasts are strong. I think Quebec is strong. You know, Toronto's really good. Uh, there's so many amazing things, but it's just like the pockets and the identity and like me coming from the Maritimes, and I was just there yesterday eating fried clams. Just, you can't kind of beat that. And it's just like you can't get that in Ontario for some reason. And, and it's just, well, I know why, because we don't got no clams. But, um, you know, like I think it's just like, the resources kind of form that, that foundation, right? And then, and then the traditions and, and kind of the, what those chefs do or what those cooks do with those ingredients define what those uh, parts of Canada kind of are. And I think it, it, it's like with the Maritimes growing up, like every single meal had the same pickles. It didn't matter what time of year. I always had a jar of mustard pickles and we always had a jar of pickled beets. And I'm like, I don't know where they all came from. But, like, we always had them because, like, every time you go to somebody's house, somebody's gifting you, like, a jar of preserves or something like that. And so, like, for me, I moved away from the Maritimes when I was nine. And I'm constantly chasing that flavor and that love and that sand in my, in my fried clam. <laughs> and I love that grit. And I love lobster rolls so much. And I just, I'm so attracted to the Maritimes. And, like, in Vancouver... I'm very much in love. They have like a high, high level of Chinese restaurants that are just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of mirrors like America, you know, like you have the, the prairies, you know, it's like big beef country. Like you go to Calgary and as soon as I get to Calgary, I'm like, I want to eat a steak. You know, it's it, just in I'm, the air. Yeah, because you're there. You want to eat what is there. You want to be a part of what is going on culinarily. And I'm very like it's funny. Like I'm always sourcing those special diners and like it, it, it's like all those cliches. Like I don't want to eat at really good restaurants. I want to eat at like a gas station that serves like a hot dog. And I'm like that hot dog is so good though. It's been sitting there for like a little longer than it should. <laughs> it's good, man. Like, I, but I think, yeah, I don't know. Canada's the best. <laughs> yeah. Canada's okay, amazing. So, okay, so, let's talk about the. Okay, so in the Maritimes, we've got fried clams. We got fried clams, you got lobsters, you got bar clams, you got, you know, little neck clams, 
You got uh, you got some rock crab in Quebec. You got poutine, and um, you know they got they got all their you know poulets everywhere. They love a poulet. <laughs> Winnipeg summer sausage. Anybody from Winnipeg? Yeah, where's my Mennonites at? <laughs> Last name Peters. They got the best beef summer sausage you can get. I don't know. Eat a lot of duck in Saskatchewan. So it sounds like the culinary identities of these different places you're talking about are sort of identified by like an animal. Like each place has like an I animal. I think so. That they eat. Yeah. But I, do you feel like there is? So okay, this is a big question. But do you feel like there is an overall Canadian culinary identity? Like in the states, we have this argument a lot. Like, mm. what is American food? Like, for instance, in my mind, the backbone of American food culture is the breeding together of foods from native peoples, the original European settlers, Mm. and the enslaved Africans, Mm. and the weaving of the ingredients, those traditions, and those foods is what created, like, the canvas on which American food is then painted. What is the Canadian version of that? (laughs) Like, what is the the backbone of Canadian cuisine? What is the backbone of Canadian cuisine? Well... Um, but that Bayesian, you've seen. I know you're not I, I like to say it's beige and unremarkable. <laughs> the canvas is beige. I think it is because you guys got a South. From all of the trauma and the horrible history, that sprouted beautiful cuisine. We don't have soul food, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You know? I honestly don't think we have soul food. We're the Commonwealth, you know, where we're bland. And we're very, unfortunately, for a long time, very white. And I think that, um, you know, I think we're very young as a culinary country. And Mm. I think that we have kind of stricken uh, indigenous culinary history completely away. Like, you know, who here knows how to make Bannock? Okay. (laughs) See? I don't know. Like, I I, I think that our identity... Um, I honestly, it's very tough. Like, what's Toronto's identity? Is what a female sandwich? <laughs> female bacon sandwich at Paddington's is kind of like. Oh, that's it, the ham you call bacon. Yeah, that's that cornmeal rolled uh, smoked. Uh, Stuff is you know, delicious. Smoke no, no shade. Hey, man, female bacon sandwiches are amazing, but it, it, it very much is a thing where you know Quebec has a very strong identity with their food. They eat poutine. They eat rotisserie chicken. They they have. Tortiere, they have, and even with the Maritimes, that flows into it. That that French Acadian, like Tortiere and Rape Pie, and all that historical stuff. And then you come to Toronto, and it is very British, like it's just like steak and potatoes or meat and potatoes. And then you go into the prairies, and it's more like old tracker style. They got like you know beef jerky, and then you get into the, you know, a lot, very a lot of Mennonites with there's different kinds of preserves and there are different kinds of charcuterie. It, it, it's very difficult because it is so wide-ranging and because we are now, especially we are so multicultural, that um, you know, it's very kind of difficult to pinpoint that. And, it is, and, it, and maybe it's even Canadian of me to say that I can't even pin it down because I'm, like, it, it would be rude for me to say that it's apples. You know? Or apple pie. Or in the Maritimes, it's like blueberry pie. Or like, you know, like it is a very... Um, yeah, like it, maybe it's very Canadian enough to be. Just, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but you brought up something that I, I, I want to get into a little bit as well. You grew up in a town uh, where the population had a, a fair amount of indigenous people. You told me yeah. earlier that your best friend was Mohawk. You grew up going to powwows. Um, you know, when we started this event, mm. we started it with a moment of giving thanks and recognition to the First Nations peoples who originally inhabited and stewarded this land. That's not a thing that is very common to do in events in the United States. And <laughs> I feel like in the U.S., like, we have truly almost completely erased mm. the culinary and cultural identity of Native peoples. And it's really like a testament to the resilience of those communities where like, people are holding on to those um, ideas and, and stories and, and recipes and flavors. Is the indigenous food not better understood or appreciated here? I don't think so. You know, like I don't think uh, it's represented. I think 
you know, indigenous people are fighting the fight forever and will continue. And it's, uh, you know, growing up in Fort Erie, like, you know, like I said, like my best friend was Danny General and, and he was Mohawk, Turtle Clan, and like going to Six Nations every weekend to play lacrosse and hang out. And, you know, it, it was an amazing thing just having that kind of experience growing up, just going to a different kind of, like, because realistically, like in my town, it was white people and like aboriginals. And so, um, you know, I loved when Kathy would make Bannock. It was just like a thing that I just loved so What's much. Bannock? Ban- Bannock's just like fry bread. It's almost like, like a yeast leaven. It's almost like a, a donut, mm. just like a fried dough. It's it, it sort of if you want an Indian taco. That was like my favorite thing ever was when she would make Indian tacos. And it was this Bannock. And uh, that's like their street taco, mm-hmm. almost kind of thing. And uh, at powwows, every year at the powwow, because it was across from the park where I lived, and um, and they would make it multiple times throughout the year. And every time I was like, whenever you make it, I want to come over for dinner. And, and it was just like an old El Paso taco, like ground beef with like shredded. <laughs> like, and that's a crazy thing, that that is the thing that I'm talking about right now on this stage. It's like because their food would be a deer that was caught. Right. Or like, you know, like, and it's even crazy. Like when I was in Long Plain, which is outside of like Winnipeg, I spent like a couple of days out there shooting a show and it was wild. Like I was talking to the kids and I was just like, yo, like what, what's your favorite meal? Mm-hmm. You know, like what does your grandmother make for you? Or like what is, and, and it was like really kind of hard pressed where it was just like, yeah, I don't know. Like we just go and we buy, you know, hopefully we get McDonald's for Christmas. Yeah. And you're like, you're like, whoa, that's heavy. And, um, you know, like, they're like, yeah, we don't have any deer on the reservation. Right. So, I don't know, like, if you wanted us to eat how we used to eat, like, what the f***? And, you know, I don't know. It, it is just, like, a wild thing where it isn't, like, really um, celebrated. Like, I'm not sure even if there is an indigenous restaurant. I'm sure there are. Um, yeah. I remember, like, Kerouac Cafe opened up, I don't know, like, seven years ago. Nish dish. Nish dish. There you go. Shout it out. How many more? There, I'm learning. Yeah. You know, like, it's amazing. I, mean, they're, they're, I don't know. I just, we just like six, seven names, even in the city of Toronto, and that's not something we see. Uh, I can't name six or seven uh, native indigenous-based restaurants in the entire United States. Yeah. Um, but I take your point too. Like when when a people and a culture are removed from their land, like they're inherently removed from yeah their food their food, and it's you know something like an Indian taco. The fact that you can still make something delicious uh, when you've been removed from all of the structure of your culture and your cuisine is a testament to resilience. But it's also like tied into it is. The pain and trauma of what brought you there in the first place. That's me on stage with Chef Maddie Matheson, host of the YouTube show Just a Dash. And stick around because up next is Suresh Doss, maybe the greatest guide to the immigrant foods of Toronto. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. That's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code 
Splendid 35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters. And we're back. We are bringing you our live show from the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto, where we spent an evening thinking about the question, what is Canadian food? So after talking with Maddie Matheson about his travels across the country, we were joined by Suresh Das, a food writer and tour guide to the unbelievable diversity of immigrant foods in the GTA, the greater Toronto area. Born in Colombo, Sri Lanka, Suresh moved to Canada at 12 and grew up in Scarborough, a suburb of Toronto, where a $10 play-all-day pool hall special led him to an encounter with a lamb roast in the parking lot of the Greek butcher next door. And that random cookout set him on a lifelong journey to find extraordinary foods in different communities and to give voice to the people behind them. He took us around his hometown the day before our show, and we ate. Armenian dumplings, Trinidadian chickpea sandwiches, Sri Lankan coconut relishes, Lebanese flatbreads, and more, if you can believe it. And so the day after that adventure, Suresh joined me and Maddie Matheson on stage. Hello. What's up, buddy? Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The fact of the matter is I've spent most of my last 24 hours with you. It's been delicious. It's been, I, I feel like a vacuum cleaner. I feel left out. Uh, <laughs> you got to join us next time. It's been incredible. Um, so really, I, I, we've been here for 24 hours, and Suresh has taken us to, I think, eight places to eat so far. Um, truly incredibly delicious food. And every one of these places is from a different immigrant community. So Toronto is absolutely one of the most diverse cities on the planet. So I want to ask you first a little bit about your method. How do you come to find the places that you love? Do you have a system? Uh, People want to know the system. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty analog. It's pretty old school. Um, so my goal is to see if I can talk about the stories that aren't being mentioned in media, right? So it's like I was comfortable growing up in a part of the city that's so sprawled out. You had to drive around to get from place to place. Transit's pretty bad in Toronto. So um, I grew up in these places where you spend a few minutes being somewhere you're uncomfortable because the signs in a different language and the people look different and they're talking really fast and food's flying out and there are no labels in front of the food. You don't know what things are. But in that space, if you just spend 10 seconds, your shoulders will start to relax and you get comfortable because you feel the rhythm. You Mm. get a sense of what people are doing. Maybe it's the bread that people are ordering or maybe there's a dish behind the counter that you can't see that people are picking up because that happens to be a Sunday special and you're there on Sunday. So my method is really about how I can insert myself into those environments respectfully and learn as much as I can in that time. Mm. So uh, you know, it's literally like my, my technique is um, a couple times a week I'll see who's available in my circle and we'll ideally there's three of us and we'll get in a car and we'll pick one neighborhood one street, and then literally just zigzag as we go from place to place. Hmm. But how do you know when the place is going to be... I mean, I guess you know, you're not going to... I'm sure you don't bat 100, but do you have a sense of what will be delicious or what... what yeah, usually um, it's friction. I'm looking for friction. I'm looking for not an easy encounter because normally when you go to a place and the menu is laid out and you know what things are, you have a barometer, you have a radar that you build over years where you can tell that something is going to taste a certain way. But the friction I'm looking for is understanding what is so special about the place and maybe narrowing down to maybe one, two, or three dishes. Because I believe that no restaurant on the planet is known for everything. Great. And sometimes, in order to get to that end goal, I have to face some friction. Because maybe the owner doesn't want to divulge that right away. There is a language barrier. Maybe it's busy and you know, the communication is not in place. But sometimes, if you just work through that friction and if you try to relay that you just want to eat, you just want to learn about their culture, doors will open. And when, when I do it that way, I bat really well. Um, I've been doing this for a while now, so my radar is pretty good. But generally, it's the friction that leads to the delicious stuff. Okay, so that's... 
Fascinating. But like, can you, can you put a little more specifically? Is it like you see something on a menu? You see, you know, the late great uh, restaurant critic in Los Angeles, Jonathan Gold, used to have this joke. So LA, the Department of Health has this rating system of like, you know, if you pass your sanitation review, like with 100%, you get an A, a little bit less, you get a B, a little less, you get a C. And he used to this joke where like, oh, if you're going to a Chinese restaurant, then like the A restaurant is like bad Chinese food, the B restaurant is mediocre Chinese food, and the C restaurant is Chinese food for Chinese people, <laughs> which is really funny, but it's also like, I love Jonathan Gold, I admire him, he's a hero, really also kind of racist. Uh, like, oh, to be like good ethnic food has to be dirty. Like, so I feel like that's really problematic to think of it in those terms, but are there signs you look for? Um, how, do, how do you determine there's going to be this productive friction? And then I'm going to have a part B to this question, which is how do you engage that friction, like you said, respectfully and not just be colonial about it and show and be like, hey, I'm here to give great food. Give me your great food. Yeah. Well, I think generally I'm looking for places that have a condensed menu and I'm looking, for who, I'm looking at who's eating there. I'm trying to find places that are corner stores in neighborhoods, right? These are not places that want to end up on top 10 lists or get Michelin stars. Mm. They're serving a purpose, and that purpose is essentially they're offering a conduit for nostalgia for a certain group of people. So you go to a neighborhood, and you find a bakery, and this guy at the bakery is making bread a certain way that they used to do in some Greek island. And he's doing that because he's from that island and maybe he's found the population around the store to be from that island. So everyone is just on high doses of nostalgia when they go in there. Mm. So you can tell when you go to a place multiple times, you can sense that. So this place is only known for this one particular type of bread. He doesn't care about media. He's not on Instagram. He's not, he doesn't have a website. He probably doesn't even have his hours listed on Google Maps. Those are usually good signs mm-hmm. because they're just focusing on, on making the bread and they don't have time for anything else. And usually if you see locals going in there, as in locals in the neighborhood, that is, that's usually a, a really good sign as well. Mm-hmm. Um, inserting myself into it, um, I strike out way more than I succeed. So on, on average, if we say um, I go to 10 places, I'll strike out about seven times uh, because people either don't understand what it is that I'm trying to do because I have a camera with me so I, and I want to be in the kitchen. I don't want to just you know, take a photo of a dish and write a thousand words, I need to get in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a language barrier, so I'll often um, I'll say, you know, hi, I'm, I've been eating here for a while. Do you recognize me? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you come here every Friday for the shawarma. And I'd be like, yes. By the way, I'm a food writer, and I have a column uh, on CBC Metro Morning. And basically let them know that I'm just, I'm here to, to highlight what they do. I'm not here to like try to steal their thunder. I want to be as respectful as possible, but I also understand that in some cases, I don't want to tell that story if the place is so tiny, and they're doing maybe three types of soup, and they have four stools, and they only feed the immediate neighborhood. Because if I do tell that story, I will mess everything up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maddie, in your travels, do you have this radar that uh, Suresh talks about? Well, yeah, you're not as good as him, probably. (laughs) Uh, You know, he's got the spidey sense, man. (laughs) Um, We have apparently something under this table. Our table? Our table. What is it? Something delicious, hopefully. Wow, good setup. (laughs) Suresh, you don't have to play coy. I know you brought this. What is this thing? (laughs) So I wanted to bring something that Francis could, and Maddie as well, could try on stage. I think you should eat it first, and I'll explain what it is afterwards. I want you to... Yeah, it looks... Looks like cotton candy, my dude. It looks like cotton candy. So a big pluck, not a little pluck, a three-finger pluck. pluck. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, um, Wow, okay. That's a lot. Maybe not as much, Francis. Maybe half of that. (laughs) This is what happens. This is what it sounds like when you kidnap Maddie Matheson. I can't talk it. Do you like it or are you? <laughs> it's beautiful. Holy cow. Like touching this, it feels like the softest. Yeah. So it doesn't break down. <laughs> Drink some water, Manny. <laughs> it's wild. So it's like, it's like Poshmuck. It's like, it's like eating a cloud. Mm, yeah. Is it? Yeah. 
depending on how much of no, it you put in your beautiful. mouth. No, it's amazing. It, it tastes like icing. It tastes like um, nuts that have been somehow turned into cotton candy that is the texture of silk. Yeah, it's Hilarious. essentially the Lebanese version of Pashmak, which is candy floss, if you will. Okay. It's, um, this is from Gadir, the place that we went to for lunch yesterday, mm. the Lebanese butcher shop in Scarborough. It's incredibly delicious. Mm-hmm. And actually, now that you mentioned Gadir, I'm glad, um, I'm glad you mentioned Gadir. Because uh, this is a place that uh, Suresh took us to yesterday. Where we got to meet the owner, Ali Dabouk, who is a lovely human. And we actually have a little clip of him so you can hear him talk. This is a traditional way. I remember my grandma, when, like, I'm, to- I'm telling you about like 45 years ago, let's say. I remember her, she used to, she used to do this. Every day? Uh, no, they used to do it, let's say, twice a week. Because you want to do it like, for a couple of days, like for two, three days. Then they do another for two, three days. So... Usually in the villages they do this bread. Are you able to tell me how old this technique is? At least a hundred years. At least. Even more. Long time they used to do this bread. At least more than a hundred years they used to do it. So she's probably been making it her entire life. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure she's making it for over like 40 years, 45 years. At least, yeah. Yeah, not everybody do. Like even like let's say if you're talking about my wife, now she don't know how to do it. New generation, they don't know how to do this. So you have to get somebody like old generation or somebody old to teach the new ones, which is... Is it happening much? Not too much, no. That's actually a good point because it yeah. took him a while to find the people to make this. Yeah. And this is, this is a, a dying art. You're right, you're right, yeah. So what Ali was describing for us was um, a, a woman who works with him, a baker, was doing this technique to make saj bread. So the way the bread is baked, there is a, a dome... Almost like a, it would look almost like if you inverted a walk and the flame was underneath. So the dome became very hot. She takes this um, flatbread dough essentially mm-hmm. and drapes it around each arm and keeps like waving it like a flag from arm to arm as it spreads and eventually becomes like the size of a. How can Large. I say I'm trying to say the size of a manhole cover, but that makes it sound disgusting. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to say, think of something that is manhole cover size, but really lovely and delicate. Like a little throw rug. Like a throw, a throw rug. rug. Like a nice knitted, ropey throw rug. Like a beautiful throw rug. She places it on this dome. It immediately bubbles up and bakes almost instantly. Mm. And Seconds. this bread, as Ali described, is from Lebanon, where he's from. The tradition is hundreds of years old. It's, as I understand, this is one of the only places in the GTA that you can get this bread. And this is sort of that nostalgia that you were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And the importance of restaurants and immigrant communities, of being able to offer those communities taste from home. The other thing that's interesting about Gadir that you told me was to get there from where we are right now in downtown Toronto it would be a 40-minute subway ride, after which you would take a 40-minute bus ride. And you said that's actually part of why the food there in that neighborhood is so good. Yeah. I I have to believe that the fact that we have probably the worst transit system in the world um, (laughs) has somehow allowed us to have... It's the incredible food ecosystems that are kind of that kind of function like silos. Because the city is so sprawled, you have these micro pockets, and in those pockets you have concentrations of flavors and, and interesting culture. And it really feels to me, it looks to me that in some cases, these neighborhoods are completely oblivious to each other. They're just functioning independently on their own. There's a butcher shop, there's a baker, there's a convenience store, the shawarma shop that's been around for 28 years. And there is this ecosystem that has been allowed to thrive because there is separation from the next major artery or the next major city. Hmm. In Scarborough, for example, you can go from one major artery to another and the facade and the low-slung plazas and the colors, the languages and signs and foods change drastically. These businesses, they function to serve the locals in the area. They function to serve that particular neighborhood. So the, the mom and dad that do amazing Malaysian food in one part of Scarborough, they open that shop there because there's a Malaysian community there. Mm-hmm. And now people will drive from all over the city to go there for that food, but their sole purpose was to feed the school and the people directly around them. And if they did a mediocre job, they'd be shut down because people would not go there. Mm-hmm. So that generally would mean the quality would be very high because when nostalgia is in question, you're not going to settle for mediocrity. 
right? Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's meet someone else um, that you got to introduce me to yesterday. Can we roll the, uh, the clip of Odane Davidson? <laughs> I bake it, and that goes for like, uh, let's call it 35 minutes. And then I take it out and then saute it. That will go for 10, 15. And then I steam it. So, so it's a lot of love is going into it. I, this is why I say it's the world famous Tata Jerk Chicken. We also make the marinade in-house as well. So you're not gonna get my chicken anyway, you know what I mean? Usually I get my smoke detector involved in the cooking. So <laughs> if that screams a little bit, that's okay. Right. It's just telling me it's time to put some juices on the chicken. I gotta run with this, you know? <laughs> we did not edit that in. That really happened. What? And then? That's what it means. See, I'm from Region Park, you know, so I got ghetto, ghetto love in my heart, you know. How often does that go off? Um, whenever the chicken is ready. <laughs> it's funny that actually happened, and he grabbed the broom next to him, and then he turned it upside down, and like he just tapped it. Like he's been doing this for years now, so he knows Muscle the memory. Grill. Yeah. So that is Odane Davidson mm-hmm. from Tata's Hot Sauce Emporium. What you were listening to was him making his jerk chicken. Tell me about the generational difference or if there's a generational shift in how these restaurants operate. Oh, that's really interesting. Who, they, um, who they're for. I, I mean, in this case, with Tata's, Tata started because Odain's mom, Sharna, um, runs a hair salon and she makes hot sauce on the side. And Odain said, okay, um, let's open a little place and we'll sell your hot sauce and maybe I'll make some jerk chicken sandwiches. Um, and he sells beef patties. So, I mean, for me, like, I, I wish we had a camera on a Jamaican person in the audience because that is totally not a traditional Jamaican thing to do. But to me, that is kind of emblematic of what modern Canadian cuisine is and the identity that we're kind of crafting. The identity of the Jamaican beef patty being probably the one cuisine that identifies Torontonians because everyone has had a Jamaican beef patty. And really? Yeah, I mean... This is incredible. Yeah. Um, so you go to these places over time and you, you, you see that there's a relationship. Most of these businesses have a mom, father, hopefully, and a daughter and a son. And you see that there is you know, some chemistry in terms of how they run the business together in most cases. And I've been going to these places for a while. So now I notice kind of in some cases the passing of the torch. And in some cases those businesses disappear. So, for example, Gadir... Um, he has four kids, and he doesn't really have any intention of letting them take over the business because he's an immigrant. He came to Canada. Uh, he, you know, he worked his ass off to run this place, and he's at the restaurant every day for 14 hours a day. Why the hell would he let his kids take over that business when his dreams would be to get them to be successful and get an education and find something better? You know, I mean, my parents were very, very upset when I told them I was going into food writing. <laughs> so, um, so in some of these cases, it's fragile. Um, you, you'll go to places for 10, 15 years, and you see that in some cases, these places do close down. And then in very few instances, the kids will take over, and in very few instances there, they will preserve it the same way their parents would preserve it. Mm. In most cases, they try to break the wheel, and they try to do something different. And in a very few of those cases, it works out well. Mm-hmm. So, Well, thank you, Suresh and Maddie. <laughs> Suresh Das is a weekly food columnist for CBC Radio's Metro Morning and regularly contributes to many publications. You can find out more about his food tours at SureshDoss.com. Coming up, New York Times food columnist Melissa Clark takes on the classic Splendid Table Challenge, Stump the Cook. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. 
Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka's seafood market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. Welcome back to our live performance from the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto. So our show is old enough that we remember a time before podcasts. We are, in fact, celebrating our 25th anniversary as a radio show. And one of the classic segments that our founding host, Lynn Rosetto Casper, would do was a game called Stump the Cook, where a challenger would give her a list of ingredients from their fridge, and she'd have to come up with a dish on the spot that you'd actually want to eat. Now, I have never actually attempted this segment because I'm a coward, but we decided to revive Stump the Cook on stage, and we brought out the fearless Melissa Clark, host of our new podcast, Weeknight Kitchen, to join me and the judges, Maddie Matheson and Suresh Doss, and then we sent her out to the Lions. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to play this game. I am excited for you. <laughs> um, and I'm excited I'm... to sit next to you and just watch the carnage flow. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. It'll be great. You're, you're gonna it's awesome. going to be good. Awesome. I'm, not, I'm not nervous. I'm not, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn was so graceful at it. You know, She just had this encyclopedic knowledge of putting flavors together. So it's a little bit of pressure, but uh, you guys are going to back me up, right? We're here to back you up. Okay, yeah. okay cool. Yeah, They're actually not yeah. here to back you up. They're here to judge you. Oh, okay. Um, you guys are here to back uh, me up, right? <laughs> Somebody. You should back her up. Ooh, thank you. I'll, I'll go over the rules in a second. But actually, let me let me start with um, start with this. So, Melissa, you uh, you're going to be great at this. Literally, doesn't I? We we recorded recently, and I actually counted 26 cookbooks. Yeah, uh, 43. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I had to write another couple of dozen because, you know, mortgage and, you know. 43 cookbooks. No, 43 cookbooks. Um, a lot of them I wrote. They were, they were small cookbooks. I wrote them when I was really young. And literally, cook, cookbook writing is a volume business. No, seriously, you don't make a lot of money. This was before I was working at the Times. I was out there. I was hostessing. I was waitressing. And I was writing these cookbooks, like, you know, very small ones. And then I started to realize, oh, my God, I love this. I love writing these cookbooks. So I started working with chefs. And I wrote their cookbooks. And that was amazing because I learned so much from all of these New York chefs. And then, you know, because of that, I was testing all the recipes and I was getting to be a better cook. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can write my own. And that's when I started writing my own. So out of those 43 cookbooks, I have written um, maybe half a dozen, maybe six Melissa Clark cookbooks. The other ones, I've helped other people write their books or I've written small books. Like, remember the bread machine? I wrote two bread machine cookbooks. So you you (laughs) remember... I'm not talking high cuisine here. I did write an instant. I wrote two instant pot cookbooks, which I love. The instant pot—that's a whole other thing. That is great. Um, <laughs> and now you're a podcaster. I love podcasting, but it is new. It is an. How do, I don't know how you do it. You know, just the constant coming up on the spot with brilliant things to say. I'm very in awe well, of you. Just out watching 90% you. Of yeah. The bad stuff. <laughs> the editing. The right? stuff that is reasonable. You leave, that's, and you hope there's anything in there worth listening to. Same thing with a cookbook. <laughs> there is a lot of bad recipes. You're like, all right, I'm not putting that in, and then you just you just the good ones make it to the top. Well, okay. Here's the thing that's weird to me about um, talking into a microphone. Yeah. Like here we get to do. With people, which is great. Um, but for most of the time, we're like, you're in a studio, you've got headphones on, and you're talking to a microphone, and there's no human in front of you. And it's almost like you're, you have to imagine the person you're talking to. And it's so weird, because as a podcast listener, I love listening to podcasts. It feels so intimate. And a really good podcast makes it truly feel like the host is talking to you directly, but the host is talking to nobody. Like, how do you... No, I'm not. I have a muse. <laughs> I have a muse. I do. I have. Okay, so my best friend from college, Robin Aronson, um, I talked to her because she loves to cook and she loves eating, but she doesn't. She doesn't have a ton of knowledge, but she has enough, and so she's my muse. Like she's like if she says to me, she goes, you know, when you have to line a pan with parchment paper, you lose me. I'm like, okay, so only do that if it's really necessary. Like I hear her voice in my head. It's like really three bowls for one dish. Come on, and I hear her all the time. I hear her when I'm developing recipes, and then when I'm talking, and you know, during the podcast. 
what I'm doing in this podcast is actually kind of different from a lot of podcasts where you have a guest. Um, I'm by myself. I'm actually with Sally, my producer. But I'm, for the most part, and I'm talking through a recipe. So I'm talking through making, um, the, I think the latest one we have up is I'm making um, what we call grown-up chicken fingers. And what they are, it's basically schnitzel. It's fried chicken, breaded fried chicken that you, um, I have this special technique where I kind of like roll it in the pan so the oil goes on top and it makes it like puffs up the the crust, so it's really crunchy. And I'm talking through this recipe, but I'm talking to Robin. And I'm like, okay, Robin, so here's the thing. You want to like, and I don't say her name, but I'm like, so here's the thing. You want to loosen it a little bit. Like, you want to make sure you have enough oil, but not too much so it's greasy. Right. And I'm talking to her, and that is so helpful. And so that's how I do it. Otherwise, I mean, otherwise, what do I, I you know, talk to my chicken? Hello, chicken. You know, it's, it's funny. It's like <laughs> figuring that out was really important for me to be able to do the podcast. That's incredible. Like, I've done this for, like, three years, and I had no idea. I was, like, talking into the void. Because you need Robin. I can introduce you guys. Okay. <laughs> she would love you. number, we'll talk. Okay, you ready to play something to go? Oh, I'm, yeah. All right, I'm ready as I'm ever going to be. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Your challenger is Joshna Maharaj. Woo! Joshna, who, unfortunately, a lot of you can't see, but she's standing right here. Hi, Joshna. Hello, hello. Be kind, be kind. For sure. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) So, um, Joshna, you are a chef. I can't tell if having a chef's fridge is going to be an advantage or disadvantage. Right. Well, it might just be like beer and olives. Yeah, exactly. It might be full of like gardens of delights or it might be like, oh, I put my shoes in the fridge because I don't cook at home ever. Leftover kimchi from five years ago. Yeah. Which but would it, probably be delicious, but anyway. I could work with that. Fermented. I don't know if I couldn't work with the shoes, but I could work with the kimchi. It'd be fermented, <laughs> extra fermented. Exactly. You are, kimchi, yeah. But you are a chef also, not just a chef, but you're also an activist. I am. Um, around the idea of social gastronomy. What, is, yeah. what does that mean? So social gastronomy is the idea that chefs can do what we do, but with the real intentional purpose of creating social change. Uh, So using our kitchens as platforms to do things differently, be it labor practices in the kitchen, thinking about sustainability and sourcing, and um, and in the case of the work that I do, thinking about the populations of people that you serve. Hmm. And so there's a rich opportunity. Our communities need us, uh, and I've really learned that over the course of my career. Yeah, and like feeding people from a food bank. Good food and feeding them with dignity. Honest good food, right? Real wholesome things, uh, and that translates into the work that I do now is public institutions. So I've just finished writing a book, which will be out in the world in May. It's called Take Back the Tray, and it is my uh, blueprint, hopefully, for the revolution that we can wage in hospitals, schools, uh, and prisons if we ever let the conversation get there. Let's say that. Yay! Right on. Thanks. Thank you. So thank you for that. Yeah. And now I'm going to be a little bit invasive. Yep. I got go it. into your refrigerator. Yep. Oh, actually, no, wait, wait, time out. I have to give the rules. Okay. Give the rules, okay. okay? Joshna will have to give you five ingredients of her choice that actually exist in her refrigerator. Yeah. Melissa, you get a few things for free. Okay. You get water, salt, pepper. Those are free. You get one so. fat. You get one fat that Joshna actually has to have on hand. And then you can, can ask for three additional ingredients, but she has to actually have them. Okay. And then you have to come up with your dish. <laughs> and Maddie and Suresh will judge you. And they'll decide if it's good enough. Vari- <laughs> with varying <laughs> levels and, of And we're doing it generosity. all by imagination, too. Yeah. Which is the best bit, right? Okay. No lying. All imagination. Do I need a pen and paper? I don't know. I've never played this game. Let me have the pen okay. and paper you might. just in you case. Might. I might? Okay, got you it. Might. Okay, Joshua, what's... I mean, she's I'm... written 43 cookbooks. She probably has a recipe <laughs> with whatever you memorize five ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the, yeah, but I have my notes there. I have my notebook. I have my computer. You know, right. on the fly here. Okay. Okay. What's, so, in, what's in your fridge? In the fridge for you. Broccoli stems and leaves. Okay, I love it. But honestly, the stems and the... Like, those are my favorite parts. That's... that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got some eggs... Okay. Oh, you, thank you for the eggs. Uh, <laughs> I have maple syrup. You, mi- wait, you Respectable have what? Canadian, oh, I have maple wait, syrup. Wait. What do you have? Maple, maple syrup. syrup. Maple syrup. Okay, I have to use sort all of always these in there. one dish. Okay. Um, I have organic carrots. Carrots. Uh, yeah, thank you, Maddie. <laughs> They're organic. <laughs> that means they taste amazing. Oh, what is, what is, what is maple syrup? 
okay, wait. <laughs> yeah. This is some real whole. And then, uh, and then, uh, and then the fifth I have for you is uh, dried chantel mushrooms. Chantel mushrooms. Dried. 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 Oh, God. oh God! All right, dried is... chanterelle mushrooms. I've never even seen. Oh gosh, chanterelle mushrooms. Some. Forms wild foods. They're they're foraged. Oh my gosh! Here, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very it's a very Canadian ingredient. If I bring those back on the plane, will I get in trouble? Yeah. No. Oh. <laughs> I think so. No. I really want those dried chanterelle. You, I, you should have them too. Okay, okay, okay. we'll talk. We'll talk. All right, we'll talk after. Gym okay, mixes. and then I get salt and pepper and water. Yep. And I can ask for three things. Okay, so the I think the trick here for me is the maple syrup is sweet, right? So I want to use it very sparingly. The broccoli, the broccoli is a bit of a, you know, that's the cruciferous, you know, cabbage flavor, which I love, but right. is it going to work with the carrots, the maple syrup, and the dried chanterelles? So I'm going to need something to bring everything together. I get a fat. You get a fat. I get a fat. So what fat is going to do? I, okay. Butter, olive oil. So I ha- you have to have it. Pemmican uh, fat. No, she's not going to have that. I don't know. Are you? Wouldn't that be amazing? If you did, I would I never like, even... I have some caribou fat. That would be amazing. Do you have amazing. some caribou fat? Do you I have do any... not. I mean, could she have duck fat? I mean, I feel like... Seriously, like, I feel like savory duck fat with all of these things would be amazing. But if I get it wrong... Do I get another fat or I blow on my fat? I can't have no, fat. You can get fat. You get no, no, you have to land on one that I have. Okay, okay, okay. The point of the game is not to be like the magic eight ball. Okay. <laughs> Does she have? All right, do you have duck fat or chicken fat or any kind of poultry fat? I, uh, I have duck fat. <gasps> However, okay. uh, asterisk on that I have duck fat, it is a, from a duck that I rubbed masala on. Oh, even better. So it's oh. masala duck uh, fat. This is good because this has hey, spice. Yo. Proper brown girl okay. duck fat. I was going to uh, ask for yeah, three. It's masala duck fat. That is perfect. Um, okay. But you and put that I'm, in the cookbook, masala duck fat. I, I might actually. Yeah, you know, amazing. this is another thing. Whenever I do these events, I always get recipe ideas from people. This is how there I keep go. doing it. So like this might actually get published. Um, <laughs> We'll do, we'll do, we'll do a, a joint recipe byline. Nice, nice. Okay, now I want, you know what I want? I want a starch here. Okay. I want either something like potatoes or I want, I want a grain, like I want rice. I have a big bag of basmati rice. Okay, so I've got my rice. <laughs> Again, brown girl staple. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. Do you think Joshna Maharaj has rice <laughs> right? in her house? Do you think she got How rice in her house? I have to say, I kind of knew that was like a ringer when I said it. Like, she would have been another awesome fat option rice. for you, yes. <laughs> okay, because I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking uh, kind of, I'm seeing like a biryani kind of dish. I'm seeing oh, yeah. like, you know, something come together. Um, the dried chanterelles, though. So, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going, all right, so wait, and I get to ask for three more things? Uh, two, two more things, more. two more things, because I have my rice. Okay, do you have any cured meat like a bacon or a salami or a no, no. okay so i can't have that, None of that. okay so I, i'm striking out on that um but you have the dried chanterelles actually so i really sausage. didn't yeah. even need that um okay do you have i need an herb do you have um i'm gonna go with cilantro yeah <laughs> come on yeah. okay and then i need an acid okay and oh. i really hope you have limes do you have limes i don't there's no four limes? lemons on the counter, though. What? I got four lemons on the counter. Can I? Can I? Can I Zero use limes. Can I use a lemon? Four lemons. Lemon. Can I use a lemon? Yeah. yeah. That's an ingredient in our home. All right. Okay. So I'm gonna, we're going to do a big, beautiful rice dish. So, oh shoot. You know, I also want I want nuts too, but I ran out of ingredients. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I'm going to take the duck fat and I'm going to fry those broccoli leaves and stems until they're super crispy. Oh, we have no onions and garlic. Oh, I'm a jerk. I forgot the <laughs> onions and garlic. Okay, we're going to do it anyway. And then we're going to and then we're going to um, add the carrots too to that and we're going to saute the rice, right? And we're going to make a broth with our dried chanterelles. We're going to oh. make a delicious broth and we're going to add she a touch of maple syrup just to kind of balance the dried chanterelles but mm. not too much so it's sweet. And then we're going to add that and we're going to cook that into this beautiful pilaf and then we're going to add our rice which we have sauteed we're going to fold in tons of cilantro like i want an entire giant bunch of cilantro we're going to fold that in at the end and then we're going to add lemon to the whole thing to just bring out the flavor we have the masala spices in i get that for free i get my spices this is the thing it's a two for one okay and that is going to be dinner tonight what do you guys think yay or nay yeah, sure. Wait, wait. Oh, the eggs! Even better, ask. we fry we fry eggs in du- more duck fat, and we serve yeah, a fried egg, egg on top. 
Wow. No, so uh, working for me. That's working for me. Do you have the broth separate in the pilaf? Or you use that? You made that broth first, and then you cook? No, I, I made the broth first, and then I put it into the pilaf. That's what I used to make and the you pilaf. Took the tri- and yeah. the chanterelles are in there? Chanterelles are in the broth, yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if it had, so it'd be better with, with broccoli. And then the, 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 the broccoli stems, are they cut up? Or they, that's they're, just like a giant, you got one whole. Just one. <laughs> no, they're, one they're cut giant. up and fried. She didn't get a knife, right? It's like stick, a lamb shank. Yeah, stick. yeah, the broccoli stem is like a vegetarian one. lamb shank. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's been, like, yeah. right. It's been crispy. Fried crispy. It's crispy, crispy. And I've cut, so I've cut up the, the stem, and I've done the leaves first, and I did them in the duck fat. I take them out. And they go on top, crunchy, crunchy. Crunchy, crunchy. Oh, I like that. She got her garnish. Yeah. But garnish. here's the thing. If I had the things I'm missing here, we know this is true. I should have had an onion. I should have had garlic. And I should have had some nuts. But right. aside from that, does it pass muster? I think it passes. I mean, I'm worried about the maple syrup a little bit. I know. Bit. Me but too. That maple syrup is tough. I think it sounds beautiful. <laughs> that sounds like a winner. I think so. <laughs> oh, you know what? Done. That's a cover actually, of a cookbook, I feel. You know what I should have done? I should have taken those carrots and boiled them in the maple syrup until they were glazed. Duck fat maple syrup. We're renaming this game. That's it's not what stump I should the have cook done. anymore. It's like, it's get the sp- cook to stop cooking. Sorry. <laughs> this cook can't be stopped. This cook can't be stumped. But wouldn't that be better? It'd be better. <laughs> okay. Melissa Clark, thank you. Josh Maharaj, thank yeah. you. Maddie Matheson, thank you. Yo, thank you. Suresh Doss, thank you. Thank you. To the beautiful people of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, thank you. So that was our show. We hope you enjoyed spending some time with us in Toronto. And really, if you love to eat, go there and eat and eat and eat. It's incredible. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Mm-hmm.